this week on Rotten or Righteous, we come to the realization. I didn't write a typical summary, and so now the show's suffering for that, but I'm also not going any faster, and I'm just, I keep trying to do something, and I'm, this show sucks. All right. This <laughs> Welcome back to Rotten or Righteous, the only show that would give Hello. you a week to get ready or get yourself presentable if we thought it would actually help anything. With me, as always, he's not telling the truth, but he's not lying either, so he must be a lunatic. Luke Taylor. That sounds reasonable. <laughs> and as for me, well, I may not think I'm a king, but I am going to die like a dog. Um, nope, said that wrong. And as for me, well, I may think I'm a king, but I'm going to die like a dog. I'm Zach Geiler. And I plan on getting hit by a car. Where's Scott? And finally, uh, Scott can't be here with us today because, like the protagonist of the movie we're talking about today, he too went into a wardrobe looking for a magical adventure. But there was nothing special about Scott's wardrobe except that it somehow shut and locked behind him when Scott went in and, well, we just haven't started looking for the key yet. <laughs> Shame on you, Scott. Dear listeners, as you might have guessed already, today we are reviewing the 2005 fantasy film The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, The Witch, and The Wardrobe. Yes, today we're going on a magical trip to visit Narnia, a land where animals can talk and hypothermia apparently does not exist. It, it's true. Those kids should have died so soon. I mean, they literally they... fall into a frozen river, and then there's still snow on the ground. And Lucy's like, I'm freezing. And so Peter goes, here, have this soaking wet fur coat. That'll warm you up, even though you just got out <laughs> of frozen water. And then the beavers are like, ah, you won't need that coat for very much longer, because spring's right around the corner. But there's still snow on the ground. Hypothermia doesn't take that long to set in. long does it take? Let me see. I mean, we can talk about this more uh, at the hypothermia scene. Let's do that. Well, I kind have time to do very detailed research on hypothermia so i can argue with you okay i mean i don't i i would just imagine that uh they would at the very least catch a cold well you know heroes don't even bother with colds they got stuff to do saving the world and crap <laughs> that's how illnesses work <laughs> And of course, this movie is based on the 1950s children's story by the same name, written by everyone's favorite Christian author, and probably the only Christian author that 99% of Christians can actually name, C.S. Lewis. Woohoo! Now, you may be interested to know, Luke, that in 1990, this book was actually banned from schools in Howard County, Maryland, due to its violence and gore. Really? Violence and gore? Well, that's what they... Of they, all the books. Yeah, and it's not really that violent. I think... I, I just finished reading the book. There's one scene where Peter, the, the protagonist, needs to clean off blood from his sword. 
because he stabbed a wolf that was trying to eat his sister. But it's not like, and Peter stabbed into the wolf's flesh and disemboweled him, and then took his bowels and pranced them around like he was in the Olympics, doing one of those <laughs> ribbon-twirling routines. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would say that this is not the goriest book I've ever read, nor the movie. Uh, this book also managed to get on the bad list of both atheists and evangelicals. You see, back when Jeb Bush was pre- or president, <laughs> sorry, Jeb, we know that's never going to happen. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, but back when Jeb Bush was governor of Florida, he made the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a uh, uh, mandatory reading in schools, and this was seen as a highly controversial mood and or move. And it wasn't just the uh, atheists that didn't like it, because C.S. Lewis is predominantly known as a, a Christian author, but evangelicals didn't like the book and still don't like the book because, uh, and I quote, uh, they were offended at uh, the magic in it because it was, quote, paganistic, which is not a word, but that's what they wrote, uh, paganistic, <laughs> and viewed it blasphemous to be rep- or to see Jesus represented in animal form. Um, which I think that they've never read the Bible because Jesus is represented in animal form <laughs> quite a lot. <laughs> at least twice. Uh, at least as two animals. I'm trying to think if there's any others. To use animals to describe Jesus is par for the course. And Lewis used a lion to represent Jesus. Aslan is Lewis's version of Jesus in this story. And, uh, I never viewed it as as a problem as I read the books or as I watched the movie. Never once did I think for a second that they were being disrespectful to Jesus uh, through this story where this lion, Aslan, represents him. But I may, I may be wrong. I don't know how you felt about it. I had never once thought about that because, as you said, it's in the Bible. And, uh, I mean, Jesus is even pictured as a lion in the Bible, isn't he? So he and um, I mean, isn't he? I don't know. I'm gonna have to find that reference. But there, uh, yeah, he's uh, it's in, in Revelation. Like he's a lion and the lamb, or the lamb and the lion, or however they put it. Now this is this yeah. is one part that I wish uh, Scott was here because this is not our first book or or review of somebody that took the gospel story changed a few things, <laughs> and then presented it in a new light. Uh, loyal listeners will remember that a few months ago we reviewed Clarence Jordan's Cotton Patch Gospel, where Clarence Jordan took uh, the gospel story and transplanted it from the Middle East to Deep South America. And I have never seen Scott get that mad over something in my entire life. It, it offended every sensibility that Scott had, and, and anybody within a 10-mile radius also got a little bit offended, and it was just radiant off of Scott, the offensiveness. Uh, yeah, I, that is interesting. I wish he was here. so Because he, he, he said he had never seen this movie before, didn't he? No, and I don't think he read the book, but it is, per Lewis's own words, a retelling of the gospel just with an, a fantasy world. And as you'll see as we go through it, it is. It is a retelling of the gospel. As a matter of fact, before we end, I want to go through some of the, the symbolism Lewis used uh, 
to or, or stand-ins that he used for for biblical principles. But we'll get to that uh, uh, later on. But I truly think that uh, because Scott's not here to defend himself, this is the perfect opportunity to talk about Scott and how we think he oh. would perceive this book. <laughs> what? <laughs> this is garbage. This Scott, is garbage. They take yeah. all the Bible characters and make them into goofy little animals. Sorry, Scott, when you're listening to this later. I, I think that's what he would say, though. I have never had, never even thought about somebody being offended by the fact that like animals were used. And I mean, how many stories are there that are portrayals of the gospel that represent like Bible characters as something else? There's like a million of them. And then uh, the magic. I mean, the magic is. I feel like it's like Harry Potter. People get offended at the mad, the witchcraft. Well, there's but, two. Uh, there's two kinds of magic in the story. You have magic, and then you have what's called deep magic. And uh, the deep magic represented the miraculous elements of the Bible, and like um, mm-hmm. Aslan returning from the dead. Spoiler alert: uh, that was deep magic. That's miraculous. While the magic that's being done by the White Witch is just sin and temptation. It's the devil's quote unquote magic that he uses to draw people away from God. I feel like if Lewis had just chosen another word for it, people would be fine. Kelsey wasn't allowed to read Harry Potter growing up. So we've been reading it as a family. I was allowed surprisingly, even in my Mormon household to read Harry Potter, which, you know, me and my sisters, I remember like playing outside, like playing pretend and stuff, because we grew up with Harry Potter. The first book came out in 98 when we were seven. And so, you know, we grew up with Harry Potter. And I remember going in the backyard and, and playing Harry Potter with my sisters, with, like twigs and stuff in the yard, you know, shouting spells at each other and whatnot. And, you know, it, that was one of the arguments that was used against Harry Potter, saying, oh, these are, are getting kids uh, into practicing witchcraft. I'm sorry, but... I have shouted Wingardium Leviosa at several thousand items with a stick in my hand, doing the flit or the flicking, <laughs> swish and flick technique, and not once have I levitated anything. So, uh, have you, I mean, have you, um, Avada Kedavra'd anyone? Uh, under my breath to my sisters all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I mean, the Bible talks about witchcraft in the Old Testament, obviously, but. I mean, yeah, the stuff that's going on in, like, Harry Potter is not, I mean, it's not necromancy, and it's, it's not, uh, maybe this is just my liberal position. I, no, I think it's, little. I think it's akin to playing for, playing, uh, uh, knights, you know, being a knight outside playing, or, or playing cops and robbers, it's pretend, let kids have an imagination <clears throat> why they have one for the world kills it, it's fun. Or acting like you're a superhero. I mean, how is being a superhero that has special powers any different than Harry Potter who just does it with his wand? Because it's not called magic. Mm, exactly. We'll just call it... Midgic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. From now on, Harry Potter doesn't do magic, he does midgic. Alright. That's... Let's get into this story. Well, like all good kids' movies, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe begins with Nazis dropping bombs on London. 
(laughs) (laughs) The Pevensey children are introduced as their frantic mother ushers them into the family's private bomb shelter. In order of age, we have Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy. And they all get outside in their shelter, but before it is shut, Edmund returns home to grab a prized picture of their father, who was off fighting the war someplace else. And this action is just spoken so harshly against by Peter and the rest of the siblings. Edmund is just a piece of dirt because he wanted to go get a picture of his dad. That's. I'll say that's one of my. Don't biggest... you just kind of. Don't you just kind of hate Edmund, though? No, I don't. Like through the whole movie. I. I, <laughs> oh, okay, I, I, just me. I did when I read the book. Like, Edmund comes across as a little snot when I read the book, but in the movie, I don't think it translated as well. I just see this kid, like, teasing his sister, having a. Like, being a brother, and then the. the I, I I hated Peter more than I hated Edmund this that entire movie because Edmund's like yeah I kind of hate oh I teased Lucy okay. you're just terrible I hope you die Edmund go lick the I, toilet I, I kind of hate them both like <laughs> of all of the movies usually you like can side with somebody you you know you feel like you relate to somebody I kind of hate them both if it wasn't for Lucy I would hate all the Pevensey Pez- children. <laughs> <laughs> but then when Lucy cries, I kind of hate her too because she has the worst crying face I've ever seen in a kid. Yeah, she really does. Well, you know, you're allowed to be a little weird when you're getting uh, Nazi bombs dropped on you. I mean, sure. But because of these bombings and the ever-present Germanic danger, Mama Pevensey puts her children on a train bound for their eccentric great-uncle's also known as the Professor and his North England estate. And I gotta tell you, they, they get to the train, the train's going through it. I'm thinking to myself, this is the worst Harry Potter movie I've ever seen so far. <laughs> I mean, Harry, you know, Harry Potter great hadn't, uncle's even, house hadn't even shown up doesn't yet. Quite, great Uncle's house doesn't quite live up to Hogwarts. Not quite. I mean, but it is funny that it does seem to be prerequisite. If you're going to have a story about magic and fantasy in England, you must be have a train within the first 10 minutes of your film, or it just doesn't count. There's something magical about trains. I mean, Polar they're, Express, there you go. They're slow. <laughs> yeah, but they're, uh, they're nostalgic. Right, and if every one thing people can agree on is that witchcraft is nostalgic. It's true. Remember back to the old days, casting spells and brewing in a cauldron. I almost got her, my pretty, and her little dog, too. (laughs) They uh, take the train to the remote country train station in a small town called Coombe Halt, and they're picked up by the prickly Mrs. McCready. And McCready is the housekeeper and personal assistant to the Pevensey's uncle, Professor Diggory. And she, I gotta say, she is just a ray of sunshine. Just a beautiful rose in the midst of an arid desert. That is, if the word for sunshine or rose actually meant a humid or humid garbage pail. She's just the worst. I dislike her from right beginning. At least they got that right. Miss McCready comes rolling in. She's like, "Hey, kids, gross. Get in the carriage. Chop, chop." So, 
So now we're essentially like uh, 0 for 5 with characters that we actually like in this movie. I, I'm still, I'd give a half point to Lucy. Lucy's all right. All right. I mean, she loses her point real quick. Don't get me wrong. But right now in the movie, I'm still a little bit on Lucy's side. So, uh, yeah, McCready, not a fan of kids. She immediately lays down the law. They're not allowed to run. Don't be too loud. Don't touch the artifacts. Because this house has artifacts, as all British houses do, I assume. And uh, above Everyone all... Just lives in this, this, Everyone lives in a state in Britain. And it's always raining. That's, what I under, that's how I envision England. Well, I think that's how England envisions England. That's one thing <laughs> England is known for, is it rains a lot. And, of course, the number one rule is uh, don't bother the prof. Don't bother the prof. Unless you see him out on the quad, then you can ask him some questions. He has office hours from 9 to 3 on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But uh, these kids don't really aren't really worried about the rules because, you know, they, they got this massive estate. Uh, so they, they go to bed that night just so excited to play outside. Except in the morning, their plans are rained out. And after Susan fails at trying to make the dictionary, uh, reading the dictionary, a game, why she thought that would work, I don't know. Nothing nothing makes me uh, more excited to, to hang out with somebody's giant dictionary in their lap, them shouting words at me, until I tell them the, 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 the nation of origin. So uh, Lucy suggests uh, that they play hide-and-seek. Better than reading the dictionary. So uh, Peter... Decides to be it, and Susan, or Susan, Edmund, and Lucy go and hide. Lucy rushes into a room that is bare, except for one intricately carved wooden wardrobe. And uh, she's going, trying to get to the back of it, and she's pushing all these fur coats to the side. And she keeps going, and then all of a sudden, the coats turn into these prickly pine branches. And wood paneling's no longer under feet, but it's been replaced with the crunching of snow. And bright sunlight is shining down through a frozen for forest. See, this wardrobe is some kind of doorway to a magical winter wonderland. And as Lucy ventures further out into the woods, amazed at her frozen surroundings, she runs into an even stranger sight than a, a uh, than you know a wintry forest at the back of someone's wardrobe. Uh, she sees a lamppost. That looks like it was plucked off the side of the road in, in downtown London and just plopped in the middle of these woods. She doesn't have long to wonder about the lamp, though. Because she hears footsteps coming near her, and a strange creature, half man, half goat, and all James McAvoy, comes walking into the clearing where Lucy is standing. <laughs> where Lucy's standing, he's carrying just armful of packages. And now I understand why Professor X was in a wheelchair in Days of Future Past. He had goat legs. You didn't want anybody to know that. Huh. So he just <laughs> rode around in a wheelchair. Apparently fawns got their name from uh, ancient uh, Italian deity for the forest. Yeah, Named nice. Faunus. Sounds about right. Seems to make sense. But, uh, yeah, they scare each other. The, the goat man's packages go flying. But when Lucy helps the creature pick up his dropped parcels, they formally meet one another. The creature is actually, as Luke just said, a fawn named Mr. Tumnus. And he is just fascinated to meet Lucy, whom he calls a daughter of Eve. 
and Lucy, of course, is fascinated to meet him. When Lucy asks him why it's so amazing that uh, she's a human, I mean, she's not a fantastical creature, Tumnus gets real cagey and doesn't answer her questions. But he does creepily invite Lucy to his house for tea, crumpets, and, you know, if things go right, they'll bust out them sardines. So, uh... <laughs> I, I cannot imagine how bad World War II is. That, that kids in England... You didn't need candy to be a predator and lure a kid into your house of the woods. But they would do it for yeah, a can s- of sardines. Seriously, how bad was London during World War II? <laughs> Look, I, I get Have you ever it. had a sardine? No, I haven't. I've, I've, I've tried. I've held a sardine in my hand and put it up to my mouth and like closed my eyes like, I'm going to bite this thing. I know it's just going to be like a salty, salty, fishy treat. But I just couldn't bring myself to bite into a, a full fish. I just can't do it. The um, I had one by accident on a pizza because this guy I used to work for his business partner always used to get sardines on his pizza, and so they gave it to me. I they probably, I mean, I'm sure they knew the sardines were on there and they were just going to trick me. But before smelling, I've been into it. Absolutely disgusting, disgusting. They're they're worth all of the bad reputation that they have. I can imagine. Now, this is the part that, uh, I, this is where I, I start to dislike Lucy. Right here. Because I'm, I'm, I, I, Tumpness has given off real creepy vibes this entire time. Like, I get, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it helped that, you know, I've seen movies like, like Split, where James McAvoy plays somebody with a murderer with, like, a split personality disorder, or, or seen some of his other roles where he plays bad guys or demented guys. But when he was smiling, all I could see was his villainous characters. And so I'm like, oh, Lucy, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't hold that, that hairy shirtless man's hand. No, don't walk to his house. No, please turn around. The, even, go back to the wardrobe. Even before, I, I mean, I've not seen his other movies, uh, but this scene creeped me out long before I ever knew this guy's other roles. It's a weird scene. I mean, yeah, it is. (laughs) You have a shirtless guy standing in the middle of the snow talking to a a six-year-old girl and it's like, hey, why don't you come over for some sardines? Uh, When they get there, Tumnus offers to to play some music for for Lucy, some some famous faunish lullabies. And as he does, uh, the fire starts to hypnotize Lucy. She sees little fawns dancing in the flames, which I agree with that. That just creeped me out. I hate when movies do that. Like when they, they turn something into something it's not supposed to be. <laughs> so stupid. But it's true. It always creeps me out. Like it creeped me out when like, uh, like in, like in uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, when Frollo is in front of the fire singing about how he's going to hell. And, um, which, first of all, real edgy for a Disney movie, that, 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 that is. Beata Maria, you know I am a righteous man. Of my virtue I am justly proud. Beata Maria, you know I'm so much purer than the common, vulgar, weak, licentious crowd. Then tell me, Maria... 
Why I see her dancing there Why her smoldering eyes still scorch my soul I feel her, I see her The sun caught in her raven hair Is blazing in me out of all control Like fire, hellfire This fire But uh, he's like, Hellfire! Hellfire! I'm going to hell because I'm lusting after this gypsy! And so. <laughs> Wait. <laughs> what movie is this? Night, <laughs> the Hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, yeah. I haven't seen that in forever, but now he, I remember. He gets, a, <laughs> he gets a little titillated by Esmeralda. Then he goes sings a song oh, about that how, he's, a creepy scene. how yeah. he's going to hell. And then in the fire, Esmeralda turns into it and just dances. I'll tell you what the worst one was. Anastasia. I had a nightmare about the cartoon Anastasia like two weeks ago. It still messes with me so much. If you remember that one. See, I don't think I've seen that one. It's about a Russian princess uh, who everybody thinks is dead. Uh, during, like, the fall of the Tsar or something. And Anastasia runs to her palace, and then all of a sudden, all the ghosts of her family, like, come down out of the ceiling and start dancing around. It's supposed to be a beautiful scene, but it's just creepy. Just stop having things turn into people in front of my face. I don't like it, movie people. Stop it. So, anyways... I don't have a problem with people dancing in the fire. I have problems with... uh creepy tumness a grown furry man Pl- playing a flute to a little girl yeah i agree with that to make too. her fall asleep after having looked out you know when he gets to his house he gives that creepy look to make sure like nobody's following him so yeah you're just like what is this movie i'm watching see what you don't see is what happened the day after where uh half goat half chris hansen shows up and uh <laughs> <laughs> tells Thomas that he's on narnia's to catch a predator Lucy is is listening to this music, staring at the fire, and then she starts falling asleep. And then, to make matters worse, she she falls asleep and wakes up to Tumnus crying. Which, listen, kids, I don't even have advice for you. If you fall asleep in front of a shirtless, grown, furry man, and he wakes up crying, you're done. I'm sorry, you made bad decisions. <laughs> There's no advice I could give you to get you out of this situation. <laughs> and then and then Tumnus is like, I'm a bad fawn. And Lucy's like, you're the best fawn I know. Shut up, Lucy. Shut up. <laughs> he's, the, he's the only fawn you know. That's a stupid thing to say. Tumnus is like, no, I am a bad fawn. Because, you see... I'm kidnapping you. Which, again, what a creepy thing to say. Lucy's like, I'd rather you not. And he's like, okay, I won't. But you go ahead and skedaddle back to uh, where you're from. Go back through that wardrobe. And then Lucy, because she doesn't understand a predator when she sees one, gives Tumnus her handkerchief to remember her by as a token of their friendship. Oh, the innocence of children and the creepiness of goat people. So Lucy makes it out of the wardrobe back into England during the summertime. 
And to her surprise, Peter is still not even done counting for the game of hide-and-seek. I mean, that's that's the thing. When you go into Narnia, you, as much time as... Can, or as much time... When you go into Narnia, time can pass. But when you come out of Narnia, it's basically nothing passed over on this side of the wardrobe. Did that make any sense, what I just said? Uh, not really, no. Listen, if you go to Narnia and it's 1201 on an Earth... It doesn't matter if you spend 15 years over in Narnia. You come out of that, when you come out of Narnia, it's still going to be 1201. I think there that, you go. There we go. Perfect. Uh, yeah, so Peter's still counting, and then she just runs into the room. She's like, guys, I'm right here. Everything's fine. And then Peter's like, man, Lucy, you're dumb. That's not how hide-and-seek works. I'm supposed to find you. <laughs> you're not supposed to just come, come running out and tell me where you're at. It defeats the purpose of the game. <clears throat> And Lucy's like, but I've been gone for hours. And he's like, Lucy, stop. Stop it. You have it. And then Edmund says the best line in the whole movie. And this is one of the reasons why I don't hate Edmund. And and he says, because, uh, you know, Susan's like, oh, I don't believe you, Lucy. And Peter's like, I don't believe you either. And then Edmund's like, I believe her. Because you remember I found that football field in the bathroom cupboard? Funniest line in the whole movie. I laughed so hard <laughs> Edmund's a jerk. He's a, he's just a brat. And then as soon as Edmund says that, like... instead of chuckling, Peter's like, you just make everything worse. You're, you're like the cancer of this family. <laughs> it's because he has to be the dad. He's assuming the responsibility. Listen Edmund's like his delinquent child I am that he needs to be. Right now, as a father... As a father, if one of my kids comes running in saying they went to a fantasy land, and I'm like, come on, I don't believe that you went to a fantasy land. But if if my, another one of my kids goes, hey, I believe you, because I just found the Yosemite Park at the back of, of the kitchen cupboard, I will laugh and give that child a high five. I'm sorry. That was a funny thing to say. And then Peter's like, I hate you. I hate you so much. I hate your face. I hate your hair. I hate your clothes. I hate your voice. Later that night, Lucy takes her candle and goes into the spare room again. And she opens the wardrobe, and sure enough, Narnia is there. So she goes there, and uh, she says, or she just, you know, sorry. She goes over there, and she runs off to talk to Mr. Tumnus. Because this girl never got the stranger danger conversation clearly. If you met a shirt, if you were a kid... You met a shirtless goat who gave who was nice to you and gave you snacks and said that he kidnapped me. And you, and then you're you had a dysfunctional family at home that pretty much hated you. Which would you choose, shirtless goat or dysfunctional family? There is the answer seems obvious to me. There is no force on God's green earth. That would make me, as a child, run into a shirtless goat's arms. I'll tell you what I would do if I found a shirtless goat man today. I'd run the other way. Probably pick up drinking. Yeah, but I knew you as a kid. I feel like you would go to the shirtless goat when yes, you were a child. and that you is might know why better. I'm so messed up today. I went to the shirtless <laughs> goat. <laughs> but uh, as Lucy goes in the wardrobe, Edmund follows her. Now, Lucy's pretty much at Tumnus' house by the time Edmund makes it into Narnia, and he spends a, a little bit of time looking for, for Lucy, but 
he's almost immediately run over by a sleigh being drawn by six reindeer. And what may actually be the worst little person actor I've ever seen in a movie. The guy that plays the dwarf, <laughs> the dwarf is horrible. Like the oh, whole movie, he's, he's horrible. Okay. I'm gonna catch you. What? Stop! Why does he have lines? Just stop it. <laughs> so, uh, would you rather run into the arms of the naked goat man, <laughs> or run into the arms of run into the arms of the uh, the white witch? I mean, Tilda Swinton is a homely woman. She's a strange-looking woman. She, her eyebrows I are just, the same color as her skin. That's her problem. Her <laughs> She's, like, such a weird-looking lady. Did you think she was I a weird-looking lady when she played the, uh, the monk in Doctor Strange? She was bald in Doctor Strange. Yes, she was. So I'm going to say, yeah, she falls into the strange category. The driver of the sleigh... I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. It's like Gnarbrick. It, it doesn't matter. Terrible actor. Uh, stops and then immediately just... He's just going to go stab Edmund. Like, why? That doesn't make any sense. It's not in the book. Not one... I, I would have remembered that. But, but you know, why not? But uh, the, the white witch, this very tall, pale Tilda Swinton... Uh, with the most disgusting wig on I've ever seen in my life. Like, her hair looked... Like, I felt like I could smell it through the screen. Like, her hair looked grody. I thought it looked uh, marvelous. Yeah. It was supposed to be, like, iced over. I know what it was supposed to be, but what it looked like was, like, dirty hippie hair. Oh, I didn't think so. thought it looked fab. It looked fleek. It was on fleek. So she looks at Edmund, and then she's all excited because... This is a son of Adam. A son of Adam is here. And for some reason, she's real interested in, in, in the son of Adam. Why is everybody interested in the son or daughters of Eve and the sons of Adam? We're not told yet, but I don't think we're actually told in this entire movie. Uh, but let me explain. Because <laughs> <laughs> in the book, there's a prophecy that the White Witch will be defeated when two, son, or two daughters of Eve and two sons of Adam sit on Aslan's throne. So she wants to stop all humans from entering into Narnia so that none of them can come and sit on the thrones. It's not said in the movie, but that's her motivation. Uh, and so she talks to Edmund a little bit, and uh, Edmund's like, Hey, I, I know I just met you, and this is crazy, but let me tell you all about my brothers and sisters. Mm. So that way you know there's four of us. So that prophecy starts tingling in the back of her mind. And then, you know, old uh, White Witch tries to be all friendly, and she offers him... Uh, some 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 sort of dessert called Turkish Delight. I feel like that's offensive. Have you ever had Turkish Delight? I feel like it's offensive. I don't even want to say it twice. I don't even know what Turkish you... Delight is. It looked like a Jello cube with some sugar on top. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> there was a place when I used to live back in the land of Ohio, the last hope for humanity. Um, whereas the they had Turkish Delight. It opened up down the street. And I was like, I have to have this because the only time I'd ever heard of this dessert was from Narnia. And so I went in and tried it. it. It wasn't my favorite thing, but your description of it was exactly what it is. It's like this jello substance with powdered sugar sprinkled on top. I mean, and they have all kinds of flavors. That doesn't sound terrible. But another thing this movie doesn't tell it's you not terrible. is that the Turkish delight is actually cursed, where when somebody has a bite of it, 
they and they they have it available. They will keep eating it to the point where they gorge themselves to death. But when it's taken away from them, all they can think about is this Turkish delight. And so Edmund, after trying this bite, all he wants to do is to get to the queen as fast as possible and get more of this dessert. That explains a lot of Edmund's motivation later on in the movie, where he just disappears and does terrible things without any explanation. But now you know, mm. listener, so that uh, uh, you you know more than, than anyone else that watched this movie without reading the book. We need Scott here to give us a sermon about how temptation works in a similar way. I think that's what Lewis was going for when he wrote it. I think. I kind of Yeah, but I, I wish Scott was here to spell it out even through uh, the sermonize it, wax eloquent on this topic. <laughs> and so the queen, after getting Edmund on the hook through this dessert, promises him uh, that she will make him a prince. Now, keep in mind, Edmund's the second brother. He's always playing second fiddle to Peter. He's never first. So this also appeals to him, uh, giving a, a position of prominence. And uh, all he has to do is bring his brothers and sister or his brother and sisters to her castle, which is uh, in between these two far off hills, and she shows them uh, the the hills. So Edmund says, "Yeah, totally. Let's do it. I'll do that. No problem. Sure thing. Give me some more of that Turkish delight. Home. Oh. Yummy." <laughs> well, at some point in the conversation, he also uh, explains that his sister. Or Edmund also tells the White Witch that his sister had been in Narnia before and met a fawn named Tumnus. And so the White Witch now knows, because of Edmund, that Tumnus betrayed her. And with that knowledge, she lets Edmund go with the promise of bringing his siblings back to her. And Lucy pops up and he's like, Edmund, you're not gonna you're not gonna believe it. I just saw Tumnus, still creepy, still doesn't have a shirt on. Uh, I just saw him. It was great. He didn't play any music or try to kidnap me this time. But uh, he did warn me about the White Witch, this woman who thinks she's a queen but isn't. And Edmund's like, oh, snap. This is in his head. He didn't say it out loud. He's like, oh, I just talked to her. I want to keep my mouth shut. And then Edmund and Lucy return back home. Uh, when they get back into the real world, Lucy wakes Peter and Susan to tell them that Narnia is real, that it's in the wardrobe and that Edmund has seen it. But then when Peter and Susan are like, Edmund, did you see Narnia? He's like, nah, I ain't seen no Narnia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a turd. Such a turd. And now this makes Lucy cry. And now Lucy's all sad. And Susan and Peter are concerned for Lucy's mental health because, you know, she's a little girl. She's not allowed to have an imagination. Hitler's dropping bombs, all right? That's the day imagination <laughs> dies in England. <laughs> but then the professor runs into the kid, He sees or kids. He sees that Lucy's upset, and then he calls Peter and Susan into his study. And I will say that Professor Kirk, Diggory Kirk is his name, has the greatest beard-slash-hair combination I've ever seen on an old man. As a matter of fact, I'm... Are you going to do that with yours? The second I go gray. The second I go gray, I'm yeah. done combing my hair, and I'm just shaving my mustache and just two razor stripes right down my chin, on either side of my... <laughs> on either side of my chin. I'm just going to rock whatever he had going on. His hair was actually quite combed, wasn't it? It was like... But it was combed like backwards. I don't know. He did. Oh no, it wasn't. He was pretty. Had pretty wild uh, hair. Yeah, I'm looking back at it now. Yeah, it is. 
And so, but he has that pointy goatee. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, Professor Kirk sits Peter and sees down in his study. And then he's like, so, what's your guys' itis? What's going on? And they're like, oh, Lucy thinks there's this magical land in your wardrobe, but we know she's full of crap. Don't worry. We'll take care of her. And then Peter starts to take off his belt. Like, he's going to go and beat her. (laughs) 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 And I laughed. Laughed real hard. (laughs) And then Professor Kirk's like, hold on a second. No, No need for corporal punishment just yet. They're like, why don't you believe her? And then Sue's like, because she believes there's a magical land in the wardrobe. He's like, yeah, is she a liar? Then she's like, no. Is she crazy? I guess not. So if she's not a liar, and she's not crazy, then she must be telling the truth. And I'm like, aw, Lewis, I read Mere Christianity. I know what you're doing here. You're doing the three-part <laughs> argument, aren't you? <laughs> See, Lewis argued that Christ is either a liar, a lunatic, or Christ. He can't if he's a liar, then he can't be Christ. If he's a lunatic, he can't be Christ. We know that Christ isn't a liar or a lunatic, therefore he must be Christ. It's a pretty good, sound, logical uh, uh, reasoning to prove Jesus, and apparently to prove that Lucy saw Narnia in a, in a cupboard. Hmm. Slams on on, Su- on Susan and Peter. He's like, hey, are you guys her family? They're like, yeah. He's like, why don't you start acting like it? And like all the people from Wild and Out come out. They're like, oh! (laughs) (laughs) The next day is bright and sunny. And so Peter decides, because he's just awful, to play cricket. English people and their weird games. And so he's, he's hurling hard balls as fast as he can at Edmund, who is clearly not looking at him. Uh... Because Peter is just the worst. And Edmund... (laughs) (laughs) And then when Edmund gets hit by the ball, uh, Peter yells at Edmund. He's like, instead of saying, like, hey, I'm sorry I hit you with the ball, or hey, I'm sorry I didn't pay attention and see that you were looking at me before I threw the ball, he's like, hey, why'd you get in the way of my ball? (laughs) But Edmund gets mad. And then on the next throw, Edmund swings his cricket back and sends the ball flying through a stained glass window, and it smashes a hole and knocks over a suit of armor. And the crash the children see are, are here. Once they go inside to investigate the damage, the crash has alerted the housekeeper to their shenanigans, and she's coming, and she apparently is a specter, a ghost that can just appear and disappear and, and sound like she's coming from 15 ways at, or, or, or 15 different ways. Uh, I can't even talk anymore. They run away from her, all right? And they end up in the cupboard room. That's all you need to know. They end up in the cupboard room. They're like, hey, let's hide in the cupboard. And then they all get in the cupboard, and then, boom, Narnia. They're in Narnia, guys. Don't worry. We're in Narnia for the rest of the movie now. No more no more of this confusing Finally. wardrobe shenanigans. This movie is so long. I forgot to bring that point up. This is such a long movie. <laughs> Back to Narnia. And so... Back to Narnia. Tumnus's house. They're all in Narnia. See the naked goat. And Lucy's like, "Ha! I told you so, fool! I told you Narnia was real." And Peter's like, "I suppose an apology won't be sufficient." She's like, "Nah!" And then she picks up a snowball and then beams him directly in the face. And then they all have a snowball fight. But this isn't just your normal snowball fight. They're all aiming directly at each other's heads. 
And they all pretty much hit each other in the head, I, right in the face. I've never had a snowball fight with someone, a good-natured snowball fight, where we are actively trying to break each other's noses. But this is exactly how the how the Pivensy children blow off steam, apparently. So all the uh, all the kids are at Darty, and, and Lucy's like, "Hey, do you guys want to go see the shirtless predator that's been grooming me?" <laughs> <laughs> and Peter's like, "Yes, yes, we do. Of course, we do. Let's all go. <laughs> so they Let's all, all go be predatorized. So they all go to Mister Tumnus's house, and they find it. His door's busted down. His house is all in disarray, and there's a there's a, a sign up on the wall that that says that Tumnus has been taken into custody for high treason against the White Witch. And it's signed, Captain of the Secret Police. Because if there's one thing C.S. Lewis does not know, it's subtlety. (laughs) And and the Secret Police is a wolf, by the way, a talking wolf, in case you didn't know, because there's a wolf print. Just then, a small bird pops up and gets like, psst! And then Susan asked the most logical question in this whole movie. Did that bird just pst at me? And then everybody agreed that the bird did go pst at her. And so, uh, you know, when you when you see a bird going pst, you, you just go to it. That's the thing. I, I agree with that. If you if there's a bird that flies down and is like, hey, pst, come here, pst, you, you follow it. And they do. And it leads them to Beaver. Mr. Beaver. And Mrs. Beaver. Guess what they are? <laughs> uh, wombats. No, silly. They're beavers. Talking beavers. These might be my favorite characters oh, in the movie. They were great. Mr. That Mr. Beaver's introduced. Peter's like sees his beaver come out, and he's doing like what you know we all do. He's like having his hand out in front of him. He's like, come here, come here, beaver. Come here. And he's like holding his hand out like he's got a beaver snack in it. But he doesn't have nothing in his hand, which I think is mean because that beaver's coming up thinking he's going to get himself a, I don't know what beavers eat, wood. He's going to get a little bark. Maybe <laughs> maybe he was going to uh, pet it. Maybe that was his intention. I would not pet All beavers. I wouldn't pet a beaver if you paid me. Those things are nasty creatures. And bite your fingers off. What do beavers eat? I'm about to Google this. Anyways, he's holding out his hand, and the beaver's drawn closer. And then all of a sudden, the beaver just goes, "If you think I'm gonna, if you think I'm gonna sniff your hand, you got another thing coming." I'm like, "Whoa, this beaver can talk." Not really. I knew that he could talk because he's a major character in the book. And so the beaver leads the Pevensey children to his dam, and they meet Mrs. Beaver. As they get closer, Edmund looks out and realizes that he's he's getting closer to the two mountains that he knows that the, the Queen's palace is in between. But once inside the beaver's dam, they're being fed, and, and the beavers tell the children about someone named Aslan, who is on the move. And that uh, Aslan's actually waiting for the kids at a place called the Stone Table. Edmund is the only one, if you pay attention in this scene, who isn't kind of like taken aback just by hearing Aslan's name. And he's the one that asks, who's Aslan? Just Aslan's name for most of the creatures in Narnia is enough to kind of like catch your breath. He is a terrible and powerful and good force in Narnia. 
But Edmund is obviously planning on betraying his brothers and sisters. He's planning on doing something bad and wicked. He knows the White Queen is bad, but yet he's still trying to get to her, and he wants to bring his siblings with him so that he can become King of Narnia. And then we're told that there's been a, a there's a long-standing prophecy that says two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve will fight the White Witch and defeat her in combat. And that would end the winter that's been going on for hundreds of years in Narnia. It's been winter in Narnia for hundreds of years, and it's never Christmas. Which doesn't make sense when you really think about it. Because Christmas is a date. And if you know that it's been a hundred years, then someone is keeping track of time. No one celebrates Christmas because it's an unhappy time. I don't. I celebrate Christmas, and-, and it is always an unhappy time. Well, after, you know, a couple years of the deep, dark winter of the Wicked Witch, you, you realize, like, why are we doing, why are we even celebrating Christmas? There's no reason to put out lights. The secret police probably told them that they couldn't. And so now they've just resolved themselves to Christmasless winter. <laughs> you know, they, they sat around December going, ha, ah, December 25th is coming up. Should we celebrate Christmas? You know what we have too much of? Hope and cheer. Let's just get rid of it. <laughs> They crushed it. The White Witch crushed it. <laughs> and uh, not only is there this prophecy that they're going to defeat the White Witch, but the Beavers also tell them that Aslan has uh, built an army for Peter to lead. And they're all kind of taken aback because it's big news. And then they look around and Edmund's missing. You see, Edmund snuck out and left the Beavers' house and started hiking towards those two mountain peaks. He's an idiot. He... He needs a little Turkish delight. Edmund makes his way to the White Witch's house. And he enters in through the courtyard and sees that her palace is just covered in these large stone statues of animals, it looks like. There's giants and centaurs and leopards and all sorts of creatures. And he also noticed that all these creatures are, are not posed in like a happy stance, but they all look scared or angry and we learned that the white witch has the ability to turn animals instantaneously into stone that's what all the statuary around her her palace was edmund makes his way to the queen the white queen jadis is her name and she's just real mean she's like hey hey edmund he's like yeah what's up queen i'm here for some turkish delight She's like, you ain't getting no Turkish delight. What you're going to get is a backhand. Whap! Then he does. He just backhands them and then throws them in a cell because he didn't bring his sisters. He's like, well, hold on a second. They're at Beaver's house. And she's like, oh, Edmund. Oh, you little, you little snot. Come on. And they tie Edmund up, put him in the sleigh, and they go off to Beaver's house. Uh, but the Beavers are, are warned that, uh, well, they're not really warned. Jadis's wolf pack shows up at their door and starts trying to chomp their way into the dam. That's a pretty good warning uh, that that bad things yeah. are coming. But luckily, they they uh, Mr. Beaver uh, carved a tunnel over to his best friend's badger's house. Um, <laughs> but he told his wife it was to his mom's. Um, but uh, <laughs> so they get down to the tunnel and running through it. They escape. Uh, unfortunately, when they get to the other side of the hole, Beaver does see that his best buddy Badger has been 
turning or turned into stone. So they get away from the wolves. I want to know how Edmund got there that quick. They make it seem like it was no hard walk from Beaver's house to the White Witch's palace. And his navigational skills must be pretty must be pretty on fleek. Right. Listen, Edmund's Edmund. He can do anything. But now he, Edmund is bound hand and foot, uh, sitting at the foot of, of Jadis as they're in her sleigh chasing after his siblings. And uh, the beavers and Peter and Susan and Lucy are, are running away. And they find, uh, or they hear a sleigh coming up. Bells are ringing. Jing, jing, jingling too. And uh, <laughs> they, they, they think it's the queen. They think they're caught. And so they dive into this ditch. But then the beaver's like, hey, guess what, guys? Someone's here to see you. And they come out. It's Santa Claus. Don't worry, guys. It's Santa. Santa's here. <laughs> Where's Christmas, Santa? This this movie. I should hate this movie. I don't know why I didn't. Like they're just like, hey, guys, it's Santa. Don't worry. And uh, Santa gives probably the most irresponsible presents in the world uh, to Susan, Lucy, and uh, Peter. <laughs> I mean, Lucy's isn't bad. She gets like a little flask of, of magic oil that if she uh, gives it, somebody just a drop, it'll heal whatever wounds they might have. It's ma- magic whiskey, basically. And she's given a, a little dagger uh, for stabbing. And then um, Susan is given a bow and arrow. And Peter is given a shield and a real big sword. So they're all they're all set. They're all set to go kill some things. Father Chris was like, <laughs> Father was like, Merry Christmas, go murder, <laughs> go go murder, guys. I mean, what'd you get for Christmas? We got BB guns and knives and weapons, and we basically had the same Christmas. Now that I think about it, no, I mean I've I've been given a BB gun and stuff, and I've gotten knives for Christmas too, but it was never a sword. Oh, uh, man, I wish I had gotten a sword. Isaac, the amount of things I could have chopped up in the woods with a sword would be great. I guarantee one of your brothers would be dead. Yeah, that's probably true. So, they get all these murderous weapons. And they keep on their journey to go to the high table to meet Aslan. And they come to this great river that they need to cross, except the weather's starting to turn warm, and so the river is starting to melt. That's my biggest problem I have with this movie, Luke. All right, they're, they're looking down at the river, and there's a big frozen waterfall, right? They climb okay, down yeah. to the base of this waterfall and then try to cross right there. Then, right. then the wolves come. They catch up to them. And they walk just easily as pie across the top of that waterfall. Wolves are light-footed. I don't care. Why didn't they try the top of the waterfall first before climbing down into the gorge and going down on the weak ice that was at the bottom of the waterfall? Oh, uh, yeah, I have no idea. Well, they're not very smart, as you might have gathered from watching the rest of this movie. These children are pretty, a little on the denser side. So they're crossing. They the- might have been worried that if they slipped on the ice at the top of the waterfall, they would end up falling down the waterfall to certain death. Right. So they're crossing this river, but then all of a sudden, the wolves, like I said, crossed at the top. They got around and they cut them off. 
and the the chief of the secret police, the main bad wolf, is like, guys, this isn't your war. You know, you guys just showed up here like an hour ago. What what are you doing? Why are you doing this? You, you don't have anything to do here. You don't know about this. And Lucy's like, uh uh-uh, uh, I met a predator in the woods, and he didn't do bad things <laughs> to me. <laughs> So clearly, I need to fight this battle. And Peter's like, yeah, and plus, I, I was given a sword, so that m- must mean I need to kill things. And the wolf's like, alright, fine. You want to kill? Then kill. And then he, like, goes after Beaver, uh, who's leading them across this river. Beaver's in the lead. Peter, Susan, and Lucy are behind him. And Beaver's in the lead. And the wolf immediately just starts munching on Beaver, just biting him a whole bunch. And... Beaver's basically begging Peter to kill the wolf with his sword. He's like, hey, Peter, this hurts real bad, bud. This is this is not a fun <laughs> time to be a beaver. Um, could you kill this guy, please? And Peter's like, I got this. And instead of killing the wolf, he stabs the ice they're standing on. Which breaks it. Well, no. Which causes a chain reaction for the waterfall to break. And then this giant gushing wave of freezing cold water pours over all the children. And they're clinging on to Peter for dear life. And Peter's holding on to his sword that he stabbed the iceberg with. And they're going down the river a little bit, soaked to the bone. Then they can't find Lucy. They think Lucy's drowned. And Lucy's like, hey guys, I'm freezing cold. I'm a little girl. I'm over here in soaking wet clothes. There's still snow on the ground. I'm going to die hypothermia right here. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I looked it up. It can uh, take five to ten minutes for hypothermia to set in. Which is uh, obviously not very long. But... The very next scene, you can see grass on the ground with, uh, you know, the white witch and stuff. Did, so everything's melting. Did you look melting, at so, how cold you know, that, water has to be in order to get hypothermia? It's not freezing. It's like 45 degrees can cause hypothermia. Well, no doubt the water was cold, but... How long does it take for soaking wet clothes to dry as you're walking through the snowy river? Well, in order for ice to melt, it has to be above 32 degrees, right? So it's obviously significantly higher than 32 degrees outside. That's why everything's melting really quickly. So it's probably like 60 degrees out. So they're, they're okay. No, they're not. They're, they were in very serious danger. But the good news is uh, all the wolves got, got washed away in the torrent of water. The three kids are safe. Everything's good. Mr. Beaver got away. I, if I was Beaver at this point, I'd look at Peter for a long time. I'd just be staring him down going, huh. Glad you put that sword to use. I'm going to have <laughs> I'm back problems the rest of my life because a dog used me as a, as a Kong treat. Peter doesn't know how to use a sword. Now, the beavers lead the children straight into this medieval war camp that was set up. Crimson banners are flying, all with their standard of a lion. Peter, keep in mind, he is not a soldier, and nobody tells him to do this, but he walks straight to the front of this camp, to where the command tent is. And he immediately just draws his sword and says, We have come to see Aslan. And I'm sorry, but if someone comes up to my house and draws a giant sword, I don't know him from the son of Adam, and and he draws a sword and says, I've come to see Zack, I'm going to take that as a threat. I'm going to come out and go, rawr, if I'm a lion. (laughs) Put that sword away. He has the the sword of the lion. 
Right. And clearly everyone knows he was already special. So to make the moment even more dramatic, like if I was in a dramatic moment and I had a sword, I'd draw it and just point it at stuff and be like, I am here. And it would be a lot cooler than if I didn't. Right. You just think about it. Just think, you know. So after, It'll come to you. After Peter threatens Aslan with his sword, uh, Aslan shows up, a real big lion. He's a real big furry boy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he talks. <laughs> with the voice of Liam Neeson. <laughs> I gotta tell you, they, I think Liam Neeson did a good job. I, I'm trying to think of yeah, he did. I don't think anybody else could be a better Aslan than Liam. Only I've um, got a particular yeah, set who's of the other, skills. <laughs> who's the other guy that everyone's always uses James, for the voice James, of God? James Earl Jones. No, Morgan no, no. Freeman. Um, Morgan Freeman, yeah. I couldn't imagine Morgan <laughs> Morgan Freeman's voice in The Lion. Maybe I could if that's the way they originally done it. But Look, some of the CGI in this movie doesn't hold up. But it was made in 2005. But... I think they did a pretty good yeah, job. for what they had. Don't get me wrong, but my, my point is, Aslan, you can tell when he's happy. You can tell when he's angry. You can tell when he's sad by reading his facial expressions. Whoever did the live-action Lion King should have looked at Chronicles of Narnia <laughs> yeah. and said, huh, yeah, we can make truth. a lion look realistic and show emotions on his face. Who knew? <laughs> That's a good point. That Lion King was so trash because everyone. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like staring at a nature documentary. It was absolutely stunning and very un. It was unbelievable that they made that all on a computer. It's incredible the technology we have. But when you have a lion and a lioness singing, "Can you feel the love tonight?" and they just look like a. They don't look like they're in love. They just look like two lions staring at each other. It kind of takes away from the moment. <laughs> I feel like they should have realized that because people didn't love the original Lion King because it looked realistic. It was a bloody cartoon. They should be like, oh, maybe that's uh, maybe impressing people with our CGI genius isn't uh, what we really need here. But listen, alas, I, I, Lion King cartoon is my one of my favorite movies. I wouldn't mind if they remade it in CGI and hyper realistic CGI. If they, if, if Simba, when he was crying for his dad's death, didn't look just like a cat hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> they should have Liam Neeson come back as Mufasa. And, um, that and they took, see, they took out play? like, my two favorite parts of the movie. I loved Scar's song in the original one. Uh, Be prepared. They took that out. And then when Rafiki and Simba first meet, Rafiki smacks Simba in the head with his stick and says, what'd you, and Simba's like, Hey, what'd you hit me for? And Rafiki's like, it doesn't matter. It's in the past. Yeah, but it still hurts. Ah, yes, the past can hurt. Yeah, that's a great (laughs) lesson. Hit the lion in the head with a stick. It's not a real lion. Do it. So yeah, uh, Aslan shows up, and uh, the kids kneel, and immediately, Peter's like, hey, man, I just met you, you're talking lion, that's cool, uh, but my brother Edmund, he, he's with the White Witch, and I'd, I'd like to get him back, please, and I was like, okay, 
It's going to be difficult, but, I, but I'll figure something out. Oh, later on, Peter is dressed like a medieval officer. And he and, <laughs> and Aslan just have a, have a conversation about the, the battle to come. Then we uh, get a, a scene. Oh, and then Aslan tells Peter that uh, after they win the battle, he's going to become the High King of Narnia. So Peter has that on his resume. You just watch that kid's head gets bigger and bigger. He doesn't need to be High King. He needs to be <laughs> a Duke. Just give him a Duke hood. Make him a make him the Archdukey of Narnia land. Make him a peasant. There's centaurs in this movie. I don't think we mentioned that, but uh, yeah, everyone should know. There are centaurs in this movie. And we're introduced to them by now. And can I ask a serious question? Centaur. Yes. Torso and arms of a man. Body of a horse. First of all, they should be called a centipede because they've got six appendages. They're basically bugs. <laughs> centipede yeah but that doesn't sound nearly as cool I mean literally they have six arms and a thorax and an abdomen no they, they are bugs they have they have two arms and they have two arms and four legs so they're a quadruped which is not the same as having six legs here's my question every time I see a centaur on screen they whinny like a horse, and it bugs me, because they don't have a horse's head and neck. They have a human's body and a human's vocal cord. I mean, that'd be the equivalent of, like, a quadriplegic making, like, a squeaky wheel sound. Is this... <laughs> that was maybe the worst metaphor you've ever made uh i don't think it is there's no your your when, voice isn't controlled by the mode that you get around if i'm wearing a squeaky pair of shoes i'm not walking down the street going squeak 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 as i walk yeah but it's not attached to your body see if you had a platypus body and a zack head you would probably make the sound of the platypus which is what um i think it squeaks Did the did the centaurs whinny in this show? Yeah, they did. Oh, I didn't hear it. Maybe I unimagined it. They don't whinny in Harry Potter, I don't think. No, because Harry Potter got it right. Real real uh, centaurs don't whinny. Well, this was uh, early centaur yeah. times in movie history. True. I wonder if there were any centaurs like back in the old like fifties movies. I just want to see how they did that. While Peter's talking with Aslan about becoming the High King of Narnia, Susan and Lucy have put on their new dresses, and all of a sudden the wolves are back. Now there's only two wolves left. The other wolves, I assume, got hypothermia and died. But there's two wolves left. And Susan is like, oh no, there's wolves. And I forgot to tell you, Santa Claus also gave Susan a magic horn that if she blows it, help will always come. So she's like, tooty toot toot, come and save me. And uh, Peter and Aslan just come running. Peter gets there first, 
Uh, there's a uh, centaur there. Aslan and the centaur are both seasoned warriors at this point in time. But they're like, hey, Peter's got to get his beak wet. All right? It's time for the birdie to fly. Let him murder these wolves in front of his sisters so that Lucy never sees him in the same light again for the rest of her innocent life. Every time she thinks of her brother, it'll just be him covered in, in wolf blood and viscera. Maybe if you saved one of your sister's lives from an evil wolf, maybe she wouldn't uh, see you forever in the light of a murderous animal disembower. Maybe she would appreciate the fact that you saved her life. Anyways, Aslan's like, hey guys, let's not help him. I don't, I mean, I, I get what they're doing. Aslan's like, like, he needs to learn how to how to kill people. He's going to be going to war here real soon. But <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, these wolves are, like, attacking. He, Aslan needs these three kids to stay alive uh, in order to fulfill the prophecy. But he's like, guys, hold back. Hold back. He's got this. Don't you worry. But to be fair. Aslan, uh, does Aslan already know the future? I assume he does. So he already knows that um, Peter is predestined to murder this wolf. Now, to be fair, Aslan does take care of one of the wolves, but the main wolf is still there. Peter still does not kill or stab the wolf. He doesn't, like, fight the wolf and kill it. The wolf literally just dives into his blade. Like, it's the dumbest wolf in the <laughs> world. He's just like, <laughs> How did this happen? <laughs> Peter has the worst sword stance of all history. He just points his sword, and of all the things that the wolf could have done, he chose, like, the worst option ever. I will jump into the pointy object. Peter did not kill that wolf. The wolf committed suicide. <laughs> Peter just held his sword still. But after uh, Peter doesn't kill the wolf, Aslan does dub Peter with the new title that is undeserved. He's called Sir Peter... Wolfsbane, Knight of Narnia. He didn't kill a wolf. He's not the bane of the wolf. The wolf's bane is the sword. The sword killed that wolf, all right? This is the worst pro-gun argument that there is, because, you know, you want to say that, you know, weapons don't kill people. People kill, that wield weapons kill people. But in this case, the weapon killed person. But Peter did nothing. <laughs> Later that night... The centaur leads a successful raid against the White Queen's camp. And he rescues Edmund and brings him back. That morning, Aslan and Edmund have a serious heart-to-heart. -heart, and then Aslan says, listen, Edmund's cool now. Uh, there's no need to speak about what is, what's past. What's in the past is past. Let it go. And his sisters hug him. And then Peter's just a jerk still. I hated this scene because Susan's like, oh, Edmund, I'm sorry. Mwah. And Lucy's like, me too, I'm sorry. Mwah. And then Peter's like, just go to bed. Get some sleep. <laughs> <laughs> He's bitter. As he could. I think that's understandable. I think this is the prodigal son being played out. <clears throat> Peter goes up to Aslan. He's like, hey, I've been here this whole time. You didn't give me a heart-to-heart -heart and talk and, and, and a feast? Nas like, you need to chill your britches, all right? I gave you a sword. You just got here yesterday. <laughs> and knighted you. I knighted you. I called he you. He gets knighted in one day. I called you Wolf's Bane, even though the wolf killed itself. But Edmund's back. It's all good. 
Does anyone else wish at this point in the movie that Edmund had been eaten by a wolf? Just me? Okay. See, I forgave Edmund, too. I was like, that's okay, Edmund. Then the next, I didn't. Then the next day, Jadis walks into Aslan's camp. She wants to speak with the king because, according to the law, Edmund belongs to her. The blood of a traitor belongs to her. And so, if Aslan doesn't give up Edmund, then Narnia, according to the sacred law, would be destroyed. It's a sacred prophecy that if any traitor does not spill his blood by Jadis' hand, uh, uh, Narnia goes away. Aslan's like, okay, first of all, little kid, it's dark even for you. Second of all, come into my tent, and you're going to have a little chit-chat. It's all going to be good. They go in there and talk. They come out. Aslan's like, it's cool, Edmund's going to stay with us. And Jay's like, how long can I know you're going to keep your promise? And Aslan's like, rawr. And she's like, ah! And then she runs away. <laughs> Good synopsis. That night, Aslan walks out of the camp alone towards the stone table. Susan and Lucy see him, and they join him for the journey. But as they approach the table, this, this sacred place... It's meeting place. Aslan's like, hey, you guys need to stay here and just trust me. And Aslan walks into just nightmare fuel. I was watching this movie with Joseph. I had to turn it off because he started screaming. I'm not even joking. <laughs> like, Yeah, there's some creepy things going on like here. Goblins and little Satans and everything. It's terrible. And he walks into this, Aslan does, and... Immediately, he's tied up, and his mane is cut off, and he's tied to a table, and the White Queen, Jadis, picks up a knife and just kills him. And it's pretty brutal. I mean, you don't see anything, but it's pretty brutal. And then after Aslan is dead, the White Queen says, hey, we're going to go fight Peter, and we're going to wipe out the rest of them. Using the trees, <laughs> Lucy and Susan <laughs> are able to get word back to Edmund and Peter that Aslan is dead and that they need to lead the armies. By using the trees, I mean, I, literally, that's exactly what happens. A wind blows through the trees, they all shake a little bit, and then at the end, a bunch of, like, pink leaves get together, form like a creepy CGI woman with human eyeballs. Not sure about that. She's got... Little petals for everything else, but her eyes are clearly human-looking, which creep is the creepiest thing. Uh, she's like, hey guys, Aslan's dead. It's up to you now. The next morning, battle kicks off between Peter's army and the White Witch. And this actually shocked me, because the battle begins with Peter sending a whole bunch of big birds flying over the White Witch's army and just dropping boulders on top of them. And it's pretty brutal. Like, you see some people getting crushed by big rocks. No blood. But it's, it's still like Minotaur's standing there one minute, next minute he's not. Why? Because a big old rock crushed him. I kind of like the Minotaurs. They're kind of cool. I wouldn't want to run into one in a dark alley at night, but... I hope you do. I hope one night you're walking in Guam just after sunset and a Minotaur pops up. He's like, hey, Luke, what's up? <laughs> I don't think Minotaurs can swim. Because they're uh, they're kind of top heavy, you know. 
So I don't think that any of them have ever made it here. After the birds drop all their... Can heads. I just also say... I also say that the, the eagles are just OP in every movie. I think these were like griffins or something like that. But um, like in the Lord of the Rings, you just call the eagles if you want to win a world-altering battle. It's the only thing that you have to do. Right. And uh, Narnia, they're not quite as OP, but still a little... Little little cheat code going on there. Yeah, but to be fair, in the Chronicles of Narnia, it took them one movie to find their quest, walk to where they needed to go, and get it done. It didn't take. <laughs> <laughs> now, while this battle is going on, Lucy and Susan are hugging up on this dead lion, Aslan, all sad. And these mouse mice come and uh, chew the ropes, freeing Aslan. His body. I don't know why they're freeing him. He's, he's a dead lion. And then Lucy Susan's like, hey, listen, we need to go. All right. It's, a, it's starting to stink. <laughs> to go. <laughs> on one hand, that's funny because I'm talking about a lion. But on the other hand, the lion represents Jesus. And I feel bad about saying that. Um, mm-hmm. But as they get up to, to move, they hear a big old crack. And they turn around, the stone table's broken in two. Aslan's body's missing. Then, a very much alive Aslan with a fresh new mane just appears. And pops up. Aslan's like, listen, I knew what I was doing all along. See, the witch's prophecy about her being owed all the blood of a traitors or of all traitors is deep magic. And she didn't understand this about deep magic, that when uh, a willing victim who has committed no treachery dies in a traitor's stead, the stone table will crack and death itself will turn backwards. And then Aslan's like, but no time to explain that. Get on my back. We gotta go for a little run. And then the two girls get a lion back ride, which just looks mag- majestic as can be. I want to ride on a lion. I don't know that lions are actually that big that they could carry you. Aslan is. <laughs> and then uh, back at the battle, uh, you know, the battle's going going on. The White Witch is is turning turning uh, Peter's soldiers into stone. One thing I noticed is she's wearing Aslan's mane around her neck, which I don't think is in good taste. I'm like, come on, come on, no, come on, Jadis. Well, she has a uh, chariot pulled by polar bears, so she can pretty much do what she wants. That's true. You know, I also noticed that Peter <clears throat> Peter's riding a unicorn, which you know I don't know. If I had to choose a battle steed, I don't think a unicorn would be the one. Kind of gives off some feminine vibes. But uh, as they're fighting, um, the battle starts to turn in Jadis' favor. They're losing it. But Aslan and Lucy and Susan get to the White Queen's castle, and Aslan raises all the petrified animals back to life. And he does this by breathing on them. Mm. And I don't mean like he's like going, like he's 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 blowing some breath on him. No, he goes straight up to him and is just like, then <sighs> <laughs> but like they turn from stone to uh, not stone anymore. 
And I just couldn't help but wondering, uh, what does Aslan's breath smell like? I wonder if this was, you know, in John, I think John's gospel is the only one that mentions it, where Jesus breathes on the apostles and gives them the Holy Spirit after his resurrection. I wonder if that was supposed to be like some kind of connection there. I don't know. Or maybe they just couldn't think of any better way to do it. I mean, there, I, I just came up with a better way to do it. Just go, I don't know, swish your tail on them. Anything other than doing like a hot breath check on them. <laughs> I'm just saying. All I'm saying is I have. I don't I've, think they minded. I've never once went, gone up to someone and went, <sighs> with my mouth wide open unless I just ate like onion rings or something and I wanted to make their day bad. I mean, who knows what the effect could be. Could be great. And so Aslan breathes on hundreds of good creatures, including including our potential predator, Mr. Tumnus. He gets breathed on. He was a statue for a minute. But now McAvoy's back in the fight. You know they're gonna win. Um and then everyone You didn't you didn't mention the epic centaur rhino charge, which I thought was one of the best scenes in the movie. Well, if I went blow so, by blow, we'd be here all night. I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to I'm trying to sh- well, I'm trying to shorten these episodes a little bit. Uh, okay, so sorry. I didn't I didn't write a typical summary, and so now the show's suffering for that. But I'm also not going any faster, and I'm just I keep trying to do something, and I'm this show sucks. All right. <laughs> Well, the epicness, in case you were wondering, this centaur and this rhinoceros charge the evil centaur, or sorry, the evil minotaur, and murder him, and then they charge the white witch, and then the white witch beats him, because she touches him with her magic stick. The end. He gets turned to stone. That's what happens if you get touched with someone's magic stick. That's right. (laughs) Back at the war, (laughs) Peter... And Jadis are just having a sword fight. And I say that they're having a sword fight. In reality, Jadis is literally whipping Peter's butt. Left, right, and center. He's like, hey, here's my sword. She's like, swing, flick. Nope, there's your sword goes. Goes flying. And then he's like, oh, but I got my shield. Somehow, Peter loses a shield. He has the grip strength of (laughs) (laughs) Play-Doh. So she disarms him, takes his shield away, and she's about to stab him with her stick. And then Edmund is just like, nah, not anymore. And he comes down, and he has a, a fight with, uh, with with Jadis and her stick. And then he misses cutting Jadis' stick. And then Jadis is like, oh, no, now I'm going to stab him. He's like, no, you're not. Ching! And then the stick's gone, just like that. Magic stick destroyed. After destroying the magic stick, she does stab... Edmund directly in the gut with it, with the broken with the broken staff. She guts him. So that's bad for Edmund. He's probably gonna die now. <laughs> Shame. I don't understand why she didn't just finish him off. Like, wouldn't that wouldn't that get rid of the prophecy if she just did him in right there yeah, and cut his head off also, or something? They were trying to franchise this. You can't you can't have the <laughs> the White Witch win. All right, so, and then uh, after Edmund gets uh, gutted, all of a sudden we hear, because Aslan's there, and he's ready to rock. Aslan comes down with all of his freshly breathed upon people, and they just, (laughs) 
they just clean house. Aslan just just mauls the White Witch to death. So that's good. She's gone. She's dead now. Um, and the battle's over. Peter sees his sisters. And they're reunited. And then they learn that Edmund is, is dying. But then Lucy pulls out her, her little flask of magic juice and gives him just a little drop of it. Which I think in the long run, yes, I understand that Santa told her, you know, just a drop will, will cure what ails you. But this is your brother. I mean, just give him a, give him a swig. What are, you, what are you doing carefully measuring out one drop? He's dying. No, see, this is actually, this is, this is the best. Okay, so you watch all these, these fantasy movies, and what they do is exactly what you described. They, like, pour out their whole super magic one-time-in-history potion on one dying person when they really only needed a drop. And it's like, Lucy is wise only to use this, because who knows how many other half-dead, almost deceased people she's going to meet in her lifetime yeah, but who, that needed a drop, who, and she wasted it all that? on Edmund's scummy butt. <laughs> Maybe she didn't really love Edmund that much, and she was like, well, I have to try, because it's my responsibility, but you're only getting a drop. I have to try, because Aslan's watching, but... <laughs> <laughs> But I kind of hope you die anyway. After the battle, first thing Aslan does is just start breathing on people again, because there's more petrified Narnians that need to be turned back into real boys. And then we're taken to a castle called Care Paravel. It's the kid's castle now. Edmund, Peter, Lucy, Susan, the fifth child, I think his name is Marcia. Um... <laughs> They all are given crowns and turned into kings and queens. And with that done, Aslan takes a just a beach, a nice stroll on the beach. Without saying goodbye, he's just like, I'm out. And he walks on the beach, and Lucy's like, hey, um, I'd rather, you know, you stay here, Aslan, and, and talk to me, or at least say goodbye. But then Tumnus is there, and they hold hands. I'm looking at you, Tumnus. I'm watching you closely. From this point on, you little creepy goat man. <laughs> he holds Lucy's hand and is like, don't worry. Alright, Aslan's gonna come back when Aslan wants to come back. And keep in mind, he's not a tame lion, but he's a good lion. I don't know what that means, but it sounds poetic. Uh, years later... <laughs> years later... All the, the, the kings and queens are grown up, and they're riding their, their, their horses through the woods. Again, if you hadn't read the book, you don't understand what's going on. There's this mythical white stag that they've been trying to hunt their entire reign, and they finally saw it. And so they're chasing this white stag through the woods, and it just so happens to lead them to a lamppost. And they're like, oh yeah, we probably... <laughs> I forgot that we had a mom and a dad and an uncle and, you know, a whole life. We spent 37 years over here in Narnia. We probably should get back. Uh, but uh, they do. They go back through the wardrobe. And when they come back, guess what? Peter is his original age. He's a little kid again. As are all the others. And the professor's there. He tosses them the uh, cricket ball that started this whole adventure. And he's like, what were you kids doing? And Peter's like, you wouldn't believe us even if I told you. The professor's like, hey, try me. 
I know stuff. Then as the credits roll, Lucy tries one more time to re-enter Narnia through the wardrobe. But as she does, her uncle, who is sitting in the windowsill of the wardrobe room, is like, you're not going to get in that way. I've tried. Turns out it's closed. Lucy's like, listen, can I, can I ever go back to Narnia? He's like, I'm sure you will when the time's right, all right? They're making a sequel to this. Don't you worry. Don't you worry, though, <laughs> Lucy. And then as the professor and Lucy walk out of the room, a bright light shines in the back of the wardrobe, and you hear Aslan's roar, and I'm just like, guys, if you waited five more seconds, it was opening up. <laughs> but that's the end of the movie. Now, like I said, Lewis wrote this story based on the gospel. All right, He wanted to tell the gospel story to kids using fantasy. In other words, he, he basically wanted to teach them the gospel uh, and or trick them into learning about the gospel without them actually knowing that they're going to, to read the gospel. And so uh, here's a few of the, the symbolisms that he used. According to, to Lewis, the four Pevensey children represent uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. The inner circle of Jesus. His four closest I didn't know confidants. That. At the same time, Edmund also represents Judas and the fallen sinful man. The one that gives into temptation and goes to, uh, for, for worldly delights like Turkish desserts and, and, and kingships. That one's pretty obvious. Susan and Lucy... Or Mary, no, they looked like Mary Magdalene and, and Mary, um, Jesus's mom, two people that watched Jesus being uh, hung on the cross. Aslan, as we said, represents Jesus. Now this is interesting, and I think this is really smart. The stone table actually represents the curtain in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place that ripped in half when Jesus died. The temple that, or the table, had that uh, deep magic written on it that that bound sin to man with that prophecy that all traitors go over to Jadis' side. Well, when Aslan sacrificed himself, he broke that prophecy, broke the table, and when Jesus died, he also broke sin's hold on mankind. And Turkish delight represents the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden. Because one taste and one taste of, or it also represents sin. One taste of it, and you want more and more. Uh, it's the fact that sin becomes easier and easier to to do the the more you do it. It just takes one taste to get you hooked. Uh, the professor, like we already mentioned, in the line which wardrobe uses. Christian reasoning of the trilemma, liar, lunatic, or lord, in defending Lucy to her siblings. Uh, it's the same argument that Lewis uses in his book Mere Christianity about Jesus. Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or the Son of God. And then, as I already mentioned, deeper magic is a miracle. And when Aslan is dead and all seem lost, a deeper magic from before the dawn of time brings him back to life plan of Jesus' death was in place before time began, and when Jesus rose again, it was a miracle, obviously, uh, that, that gave him light and allowed Jesus to defeat death. Okay, 
so let's go ahead and do our rating. Uh, SEP scale, you know it by now. Scriptural accuracy, entertainment, rental control, and uh, should you watch it. All right, Luke. Scri- yes, Zach. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say why it's not, you know, it's not the Bible story. It is the Bible or it is biblical. I think we can give it a scriptural accuracy rating, knowing that it was based on the gospel, uh, or on the gospels. So, with that in mind, uh, what, what's your scriptural accuracy rating for *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*? Uh, I would probably give it a twenty-five. I don't see. I mean, I don't see anything that's contradictory to what the scripture said and i think it does a really good job at tying in not just like the basic elements of the gospel but even some more complex themes that run through the the bible story and so um i'll give it a 25 yeah i'm right there with you i'm gonna give it a 25 uh the fact that it explains things like the torn veil and it does too like when you think about it and it, it puts it in a kid-friendly way uh, some of the the more nuanced areas of of the gospel story, and uh, I'm impressed by that. It's very well done. There's nothing in it that I don't agree with, as far as the uh, parable, if you want to call it that, goes. As far as taking the gospel story and putting it in this fantasy uh, realm. So with that, I'll give it a 25. Uh, entertainment value. Were you entertained by this? Uh, yeah. Uh, I would probably give it a, uh, probably like a 22. There were some parts that I just thought were kind of slow, um, but, and it was a, it was a really long movie. And so there are a few spots I was like, man, I, I, I just don't really love the characters. I don't know why, but they've never been people that I've really related to in any way. I was surprised by how faithful they were to the book. Like, almost to a fault. I, I get annoyed when, when movies cut things out of the book, but when your runtime for a kid's movie is two hours and 30 minutes, cut some things out of the book. It's okay. <laughs> Keep the majority of it, but uh, yeah, I'm going to give it a 20 overall for entertainment. It was very long. But other than that, it was good. Um, CGI was good for the time, still holds up. It was a good movie. Uh, parental control. Was there anything uh, that that concerns you as far as violence what, and whatnot? Uh, I would I would agree with you that the uh, stone table scene is all creepy for kids. Um, I don't I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing though. I mean because they want to portray that side of things in a bad, creepy light, and it is bad and creepy. So, and then there's obviously a couple people getting stabbed, Wolf getting stabbed, I don't think there's any blood, people getting smashed by boulders, people getting their face eaten off by lions. Uh, overall, 22. All right, and uh, yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm going to have to knock five points off because I was watching it with a three-year-old who was digging the, the lion and the talking animals up until you get to the stone table point, and he literally flipped out. So, uh, I'm going to give it a 20, uh, just because it could be scary for, for toddlers. Um, 
And then finally, we come down to should you watch it. What's the merit? Uh, I, I think we've already discussed this. I, I'll go first. I'm going to give it a 25. Honestly, I would have no problem showing this to or this movie or showing this book, reading this book with a group of, of elementary school kids or even teenagers, really, uh, reading this book and then going back and showing the parallels from this story of the Bible and, and using this as a, uh, uh, an example to teach them the Bible in a way that, that might be, I don't want to say more memorable, but at the very least more accessible than, you know, trying to take them back to the first century and the first century culture and stuff. When you build your own world from nothing like Narnia and you explain all the facets of Narnia uh, in and out uh, the way Lewis did, um, then because you create your own culture, you already explain the culture of the world and apply it to that. And I do think it's it makes the story a little bit more approachable for the younger uh, audience. And then it's very easily to transfer the story over to the biblical works. Yeah, I think it does a good job at um, taking complex themes like the atonement. and Because, I, I mean, the Bible doesn't necessarily... I wouldn't say it spells out a lot of those things for the reader in like a really, really simple way. Like you have to take some time to think about some of the stuff that's going on in, in the scriptures. And, uh, but this story does a good job at, at kind of just simplifying all of that and putting into, into a, a very visual story, I guess. And yeah, I think it's more accessible to, to kids. I'd give it a 25 well, the stuff that you're familiar with. Listen here, Luke, I decided to come in for the last part of this podcast and say that this is heresy of the highest caliber. <laughs> to turn heaven and the Palestine area of the first century into some fantasy, nimby-pimby, magic-filled land and turn Jesus into a lion, I tell you what, I've never seen nothing, Darden Tootin, that got me so riled up. <laughs> I think... <laughs> I think that whoever reads this book or sees this movie is going to hell. Thanks, Scott. That being said, I'll give Glad it a twenty-five. Glad to show up here in the last moment. <laughs> <laughs> all right. When all things are considered, we gave it an average grade of a ninety-two percent, which is the highest-rated movie ever. I think I don't know if we'll ever get closer to a perfect score than that. Uh, and so, according to our grading scale, that means The Chronicles of Narnia, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe gets an A+. And, of course, we use Carleton University's grading scale. Go Ravens. Do you want to try the Raven this time, Luke? It's fun. Okay. And there you have it. Next week, join us as we watch movie number two, Prince Caspian, the second movie in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe trilogy. Until next time. I'm Zach Geiler. I'm Scott Judge. And I'm Luke Taylor. Hey. What? Do you know what the witch said when I asked her what she and the lion were doing in my wardrobe? Um, no. She said, Narnia business. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Movie Indiana Cupboard. You ever see that movie?
No. Uh, it's about a little toy Indian that lifted a cover. <laughs> Why? I don't remember. Why would you make that movie? I don't know. I had I remember having it on VHS because the VHS came with a little key, like in the movie, because the cover had a key, and there's like a little keyhole on the side of the VHS box. Like it was one of them plastic ones. And you put the key in it yeah. and turned it, and the VHX box would open up. I just, I'm pretty, what, um, I'm pretty sure the case. I feel like if you, if you keep your Indians in your cover, it feels like colonialization. It feels like it's not very uh, appropriate. I want to see how the f- now. I don't want to see it. How was the first centaur conceived? Um, I'm not gonna go into that in any detail due to the parental guidelines of this uh, podcast. I just want to know if the mom was the horse or the dad was the horse. I also have no comment on that. I mean, I kind of <laughs> hope the mom was the horse because that'd be terrible for a woman to give birth to a centaur. Uh, yeah. Do you think like the, it's probably like one of those one of the first centaurs came out with like a horse head and a human body? <laughs> <laughs> there is a show that has something like that. What is that? Yeah, but it would have oh, to man. it would have to go along with it. So that would come out with like a horse head up to the shoulders. So his top hands are hooves, and then he would just have a human body underneath. That'd be highly unfortunate, because hooves can't be good for hands. This is my biggest problem with <laughs> fantasy movies. It, it gives me questions like this that I have to ponder and think about. <laughs> no, you don't. You're not supposed to. You're just supposed to accept it. 